be the attitude of our hearts that we would be willing to give all even as Christ gave all for us. Father, would you open our hearts this morning? Would you make them tender by your Holy Spirit so that we can hear what it is that you want to say to us? Pray that the next few minutes would be about your word and your truth, not about me, not about anything else. We would hear what you have to say, and we will thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. told somebody before we started this morning that with that breeze kicking up, this could be really short. If my clothespins fail and everything heads toward uh, High Street, I did tell Gavin to be on alert. I told him to dive and sacrifice his body if he had to. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. At one point in the not-too-distant past, and I know some of you are plenty old enough to remember this, Michael Jordan was the most recognizable person on the planet. Everybody knows Michael Jordan, right? Anybody alive during his heyday besides me? Many of you don't want to admit it, but I know you were just from looking at you. Uh, Michael Jordan was a basketball player from North Carolina, played for the North Carolina Tar Heels, went to the NBA, very quickly became the best player in the NBA. In his first year in Chicago playing for the Bulls, life was relatively normal. He would take his clothes and go to the laundromat. He would go to the grocery store, take out after the game. Everything was pretty normal. But then as people began to see what he could do on the court, he became more and more popular. And pretty soon he couldn't do anything that most normal people do. He would have to call the local grocery store and ask them to open up after hours so he could go in and shop when everybody else was gone. He had to eat all of his meals in his hotel room. He couldn't go to a restaurant. If he wanted to play pool after the game, he had to have the owner of the club rope off an area. And even so, hundreds of people would be standing just outside the rope for hours watching him play pool. Michael Jordan had a lot of fans, millions and millions of fans. And as a result, people bought billions of dollars of Nike basketball shoes in Chicago Bulls gear, and they made Nike a, a household name and made the Bulls the most popular team in the NBA and made himself a billionaire in the process. Now, not every one of us is an NBA fan, but I know that you are, I guarantee that you are a fan of something. You're a fan of a certain brand of car or truck, or a certain brand of clothing, or footwear, some of you guys are fans of certain brands of firearms more than others, or tools. You like actors or musicians, TV shows or movies. How do I know that? I know that because you wear the t-shirts or the hats. You watch the show. You buy the music. You talk about it. You're a fan. Did you know that Jesus has fans? God is very popular. I know it may not seem like it in the world that we live in. He's very popular. The Bible has sold over 5 billion copies in the last couple of 300 years since the invention of the printing press. It's been translated into 349 languages. And even now, this year, in this most recent census that I referred to a couple of weeks ago, 
despite all of the evil, despite all of the ungodliness that's going on in our world, even still 65% of adults in this country claim to be Christians. My question is, how many of these are actually disciples of Jesus Christ? Are you a disciple or are you just a fan? You see, a fan will buy the shirt, will buy the book, put the sticker on the car, but a disciple will change the way that he lives because of what he believes. There is a very popular TV preacher who wrote a book a few years ago, and it's called Live Your Best Life Now. Sold 8 million copies. It's so popular that there's a study guide, a calendar, and I found out this week there's even now a Live Your Best Life board game. But that's not the gospel. Live Your Best Life Now is not the gospel. It's a self-centered platitude. It's not true discipleship. True discipleship carries a cost. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus does not call us to comfort and ease. He doesn't call us to living and doing what's best for ourselves. He calls us to total commitment and unreserved submission. You see, God calls us not to be fans, but to be disciples. Now, last week, if you were here, Pastor Tim got us into the New Testament. We've bridged the divide from the old to the new. And he spent last week talking to us about how things have changed and the difference that Christ was making. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He took on a human body, even though he is God. He was God then. He has always been God. He is God today. But he took on a human body, and he came to the earth to teach, to show people the gospel, to impact their lives. And we're jumping into the middle of Jesus' ministry here this morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And we're seeing that Jesus is becoming very popular. We're actually seeing that Jesus has some fans. He's been drawing huge crowds. And if you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, many sections of these Gospels are very similar, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptic Gospels. They cover a lot of the same events, a lot of the same things that, were hap that happened or recorded in these books. And as we look at them, we try to figure out how does Jesus become so popular? I mean, he was born in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, a little hole-in-the-wall place. Shortly after that, he and his family fled to Egypt because Herod was killing all of the babies, trying to kill Jesus. He comes back on the scene. He most likely works in his father's carpenter shop. Then all of a sudden, at about 30 years old, he begins to teach. He begins to gather disciples. And now he's drawing these huge crowds. Why is he drawing all these crowds? I want to suggest to you this morning... Now, one of the reasons he's drawing these huge crowds is that people want to see what he's going to do next. Because he's working all of these miracles, he's doing amazing things. He's healing sick people. He's walking on water. He's given sight to the blind. 
And in chapter 8 and verse 1, we're not going to take time to read the whole chapter, but at the very beginning, you see there's another huge crowd, and Jesus is teaching, and they're there, and he realizes that there's no food for them. There's no place for them to go to get something to eat. And so he decides to feed them with seven loaves of bread. And if you read that passage, there's 4,000 people there, and he takes seven loaves, and he makes it enough. He makes it more than enough. They actually gather up. Seven baskets of food afterwards. This is on top of the fact that just a little while earlier, he fed 5,000 people with some kid's Lunchable. So everybody's coming around. They want, What's he going to do next? What's he going to do? Well, after he feeds the 4,000, he gets in a boat, and he travels to another community, and he begins to teach there. He's traveling all over the countryside. So let's start reading in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, And he, Jesus, began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So here's Jesus doing all these incredible things. He's showing us all this power. And he says, I must suffer and be rejected and killed. I want you to notice the word must. It means necessary. It means inevitable. This has to happen. I want you to understand this. We've talked about it many times, but I'm going to talk about it every time I have the opportunity until, from now until God tells me to stop talking. The cross was not an accident. Jesus Christ being arrested, being tried, being crucified happened on purpose. It was part of God's eternal purpose. Look at verse 32, just the first phrase, 32a. And he said this plainly, literally, openly, confidently, boldly. He wanted to make sure the disciples and the people who were gathered there understood what he was talking about. You see, if you were to read the Gospels, you would find out that this wasn't the first time Jesus had said this. He said it before. He said it this time, and he would say it again before he went to the cross. I am going to die. He wanted to make sure they understood what he was saying. He told them this before, but they weren't tracking. They weren't getting it. They were getting lost, probably, possibly, I don't know, in all the hoopla surrounding him. I mean, it's like traveling with Michael Jordan. Jesus was going around. Every time he stopped, there'd be a crowd. I mean, there's one instance where Jesus decides the crowd is so big, and it's this wouldn't happen here because everybody likes to keep their distance to give me a nice buffer, and I appreciate that so much. But when Jesus was teaching, they got so close, he had to get in a boat and push offshore because they were crowding him. He was getting his flip-flops wet. I'm not making this up. You guys think I make this stuff up, but I don't. You can read it. It's there. He got on the boat. He pushed offshore because the crowd was massive. And the disciples are traveling around with him like, this is awesome. What is this guy going to do next? Um, I'm going to die. They weren't getting it. 
So he told them this very clearly, very plainly. Now look at the second half of verse 32, please. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) We could do a series of messages on dumb things Peter said. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, literally correct him and admonish him. Now, I see this happen all the time. I remember when it happened. Gavin was much smaller when I did this. I don't do it so much anymore, but there were times when Gavin would do something, and I would take him by the hand or the arm or whatever I could get a hold of, and I would bring him over here, and I would say, Gavin, no, this is not going to happen. Right? I see you guys do it all the time. It still works. Well, I don't know if it works, but we still do it. You take your child to the side and you correct them. This is not going to happen. This is what Peter is doing to Jesus. Okay? We've talked about this before. Sometimes it's hard to get the feel of what's happening with the 2D, you know, on paper, black and white. Imagine... If Jesus was standing up here teaching today instead of me, and I was down there, and I didn't like something he said, and I came up and said, um, <clears throat> Jesus, can I, <laughs> can I talk to you for a second? That's wrong. That's what Peter was doing. He was telling Jesus that he was wrong. In Matthew's account, when he records this, Matthew says that Peter said, this will never happen. I'm going to die. Jesus, that is not going to happen. And we know how Peter felt about that, right? Because later in the garden, when they came to arrest him, what did Peter do? Whipped out his big sword and took a swipe trying to defend him. This will not happen. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 33. But turning... Remember, Peter had taken him aside. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. (laughs) Pretty strong words, huh? Can you imagine if Jesus looked at you after you said something and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, he is not saying that Peter was demon-possessed. He was not saying that Satan had somehow taken over Peter's body. We know that because of what he followed it up with. What he's saying is, Peter, you're not talking like a disciple. You're talking like Satan talks. You're saying something that Satan would say. Why was he doing that? What was Peter's problem? Well, Peter's problem was he had a faulty view of the Messiah. Peter's view was that Messiah should be strong and should be bold and should ultimately be victorious. When Jesus is healing diseases and casting out demons and feeding crowds with a few loads of bread, 
Peter liked that Jesus. He wanted to follow that Jesus. He was excited about that. That's the kind of Jesus we want to follow too. Look at what he's doing. Look at this. I want to be a part of that. Are we or are we not drawn to momentum? Are we or are we not drawn to the things that are working, that are winning? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I don't want you to betray yourself, but how many people went out and bought a Tampa Bay Buccaneers jersey when Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay? Or maybe you waited until he won a Super Bowl there too, and then you're like, yep, that's my team. (laughs) After 25 years of Patriots fandom, you jumped off that boat. It's okay, I did too. <clears throat> we are drawn to it, aren't we, folks? You can admit it. We're drawn to what is working. We're drawn to what is exciting, what is changing lives, what is transforming communities. We want to be a part of that. My question is, did Peter say anything that we haven't said in spirit? You don't understand, Peter. You don't understand. All you can think about is the things of man. All you can think about is the way that you think it makes sense that I do this. Peter was valuing the wrong things. He was valuing the wrong things, and we do too, often. Our primary concern is is often our comfort. And we focus on what makes sense to us in this physical world in which we live. Tell me how many of you are looking at the direction this country is going and saying, yep, I'm looking forward to this. I see this heading in a good direction. I think 2025 is going to be amazing. That's the way we want it to go, right? We would prefer that things got more comfortable for us. We would prefer that there were less restrictions on our gathering and worshiping our God together. Would we not? Of course. We would prefer that when we go out into the community and we do something to show the love of God to those around, we would prefer that crowds of people came and said, thank you for doing this. This is wonderful. instead of somebody driving by and rolling down their window and cursing at us, right? You don't understand, Peter. I can imagine if the conversation went further, maybe Jesus would have said something like this to Peter. Um, Peter, do you remember the prophet Isaiah? Of course, Jesus, of course. I've read Isaiah many times. Um, Do you remember Isaiah 53? Oh, that's a good one. That's That's a good one. Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 53? 
about the Messiah? Uh, yeah. Oh. He will be wounded for our transgressions. He will be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace will be upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's me, Peter. That's me. And by the way, we didn't read it, but three verses before this happens in Mark 8, 29, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you guys think I am? You know what? Guess who spoke up? Peter. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one. Three verses later, this ain't happening. If Christ doesn't go to the cross, we have no salvation. He told them this plainly. Let me ask you this question, my friends. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Do you understand? Because I'm going to read this next verse, and it's pretty plain. Verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Guys, gather around. Take a knee. Crowd, hey, all you guys that are here to see me do amazing, come here. Come closer. I want you to hear this. I'm not interested in fans, not interested in admirers. I am looking for disciples. And this is what a disciple is. Now, earlier, Jesus had said three things that he would have to do. He would suffer, and he would be rejected, and he would be killed. Now, he gives us three things. If you want to be a disciple... First of all, he says you need to deny yourself. Literally reject self or refuse to recognize self or selfish desires. The, the verb tense here when he says deny yourself in the original language implies decisive action. I need to decide that I'm not going to live for myself. I want to suggest to you this morning that self-denial is the beginning of discipleship. That's the beginning. Self-denial is the beginning of discipleship, and the beginning of self-denial is denying self-righteousness. Let me explain by what I, what I mean by that. If you are going to deny self, if you're going to live the life of a disciple... The first thing that you need to deny is your ability to save yourself. Because that's how most of us live. What do I got to do to save myself? What do I have to do to make myself palatable to God, acceptable to God? That's the first thing we have to deny. We can't do it. Several years ago, I told you the story of William Borden, who was the original missionary to Islam. 
gave up a life of privilege, went to Africa, ended up dying there in Africa. But I shared with you this, I think about it almost every day over the years since I read this. One of the things that William Borden said was say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Every time we come to a decision point, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. That's self-denial. This does not come naturally to us. It is something that must be chosen. Deny yourself. Here's the second thing that Jesus says. You need to take up your cross. Again, this is emphatic, decisive action. But what does it mean to take up your cross? What does that mean? That sounds so strange. Well, in today's world, the cross has become an iconic symbol, almost a, almost a sentimental symbol for us. But when Jesus was writing, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, the cross was a torture device. It was an execution machine. If you read about the states in our country that have capital punishment now, most of them do it by lethal injection. And if you know anything about it, you know that they are constantly working on that process to make it as quick and as smooth as possible. It's a terrible thing to take someone's life. But states and doctors continue to work and work to improve and, and streamline the process so that it can be as quick and as painless as possible. But in the Roman days, they wanted the opposite, man. They wanted it to take as long and be as painful as possible, so somebody invented the cross. And when you died on a cross, it took hours, hours of agony. It was designed to prolong death, not expedite it. It was public, it was painful, it was humiliating. It's estimated that during the Roman Empire, 30,000 Jews were crucified. So when Jesus says, carry the cross, this is what he's talking about. Carrying the cross was part of the process. Now I'm sure you know because we read it a lot at Easter or if you're reading through the Gospels, you read the account of the crucifixion, you know what was the first thing that Jesus had to do after he was arrested and tried and beaten. What did he have to do? Nobody knows. Okay, I'll tell you. He had to carry the cross, right? He had to carry his cross. This was not something that they decided to make Jesus do because they wanted to make it worse for him. This is part of the process. If you were going to be crucified, after you got tried, you had to carry your cross to wherever the crucifixion was going to take place. Why did they do that? They did it to multiply the humiliation. They did it so that they made sure that everybody between the courthouse and the crucifixion site knew that you were going to die because of who you were and what you had done. So to carry your cross as a disciple means to be willing to bear the shame and to be willing to bear the pain. It means to acknowledge it. It means to be willing to be public about the fact that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. I looked at this 
phrase quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. And I found out that it is literally Jesus saying to Peter and the other disciples and the rest of the people there, he is literally saying to them, take up your cross. He's not saying take up my cross. Take up your cross. Your cross is different than my cross. I don't know what it is that God is going to ask you to do. I don't know what he's going to ask you to bear in your lifetime. Some of you have been asked to bear tremendous physical pain from an illness or an injury. Some of you bear huge amounts of emotional pain because of what's happened in your life and in your family, grief and hurt. Some of you have had horrible things happen in your families that you have to wrestle with. Some of you had terrible things happen at your jobs. Some of you may struggle with mental illness. I don't know what your cross is. I don't know what it is that God has asked you to bear in your life. But if you are His, He says, take up your cross. Bear whatever it is that I've asked you to bear and be willing to admit you are my disciple. Sometimes we don't like to do that. Sometimes when we have to bear burdens and suffer and mourn and grieve, we get angry at God. Sometimes we suffer because of our connection to Christ. Sometimes you are asked to make a decision in your home or at your school or at your job, in your community, that identifies you as a, as a follower of Christ. And it is difficult. And you suffer for it. Jesus says, take up your cross. Bear it. Be willing to bear it. And thirdly, follow me or follow Christ. Literally, keep on following. Walk like he walked. How did, how did Jesus walk? He walked humbly. He walked graciously. He walked mercifully with the people that he came into contact with. See, the way of discipleship is not the way of triumph. It's the way of humility. It's not the way of conquering, it's the way of service. And being a disciple means to be willing to bear whatever Jesus puts in front of you to bear. I don't know what that is. Jesus goes on, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We can't save our lives. We don't have that kind of power. And yet we still try to do it. Many of you have lived your lives for years and you can honestly say, I tried to do that. I've tried to save my life. I've, I've tried to fix my life. What Jesus is saying here is that any attempts to preserve your life will only result in you destroying it. Jesus is challenging the disciples and he's challenging us. This is about how you're going to live your life. And there's only one way to live it if you care about your soul. And that's self-denying discipleship. Look at verse 37. For what can a man give 
in return for his soul. There is nothing. I was reading a brief article about an interview that a biographer did with Steve Jobs very close to the time that he died. Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Apple and became the face of Apple and was a multi, 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 multi multi-billionaire. And the interviewer asked him if he believed in God. Especially now, he had proclaimed to be a Buddhist at one point in his life, but especially as he got close to the end of his life, he knew he was going to die. He had cancer. There was nothing that they could do about it. The interviewer said, Mr. Jobs, do you believe in God? Well, I'd say it's about 50-50. said, sometimes when I'm feeling real low and feeling about the end of my life and wishing there's something else, I kind of believe that there's a God. But then I'm like, no, that ain't going to happen. Those billions of dollars cannot change what happened when Mr. Jobs died. What can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38. This is the last verse we're going to read. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Peter, guys, crowd, this is the way. The cross of self-denial. The cross of rejection and suffering. It's not comfortable, but I'm telling you, this is what Jesus says. It's right here. If you are ashamed of me, you're not truly mine. Now, he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's not talking about you're a disciple of God and, and you're his. You've trusted Christ and you are saved. And then you didn't say something when you should have said something sometime. And now you're not saved anymore. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying if you live your life in a way that shows that you are ashamed of me, that you don't want any part of me, when the going gets tough, when does he say in the sinful and adulterous generation, I think we could probably classify our world today as a sinful and adulterous generation, then you're not truly mine. Those are hard words. Are you an admirer of Christ or a disciple? Know this, true discipleship carries a cost. It's very easy for us in this world to become obsessed with comfort physically and spiritually. We can become obsessed with big, even spiritually in our churches, big churches, big budgets. That's what makes sense to us. Everything should get bigger, right? Everything should get better. Everything should get smoother. I mean, I got to tell you, Tim and I, you know, we sit back in our comfy chairs in our offices and say, we should be coasting by now. We've been doing this for a long, long time, right, Tim? Is that what you're looking for? Coasting? (laughs) Cruise control? Hey, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing this for 30-odd years. This is just going to get easier because it's going to get bigger and smoother. That's what makes sense in our minds, but I got to tell you, it doesn't feel like that's happening. Jesus does not conform to our view. He doesn't conform to our image of who he should be or what he should ask of us. There were priests in this crowd. We didn't read it in the verses that we read, but it's in there. 
There were priests in this crowd, priests who had memorized every word of Scripture. They should have recognized who he was. But friends, listen. Dealing with the holy doesn't render you incapable of holiness. Look at the disciples. The disciples had already left their homes and their families and their jobs to follow him. They were traveling around. All they were doing was listening to him teach. Following him was their life's work. And yet Peter condemns him. Being a disciple does not just happen. Bring this into our situation. If anyone should know who Christ is and know what he demands, it should be us. It should be the church. I mean, this is what we do, right? We get together and we hear somebody teach and we sing about it and we go to group and we talk about it for years. But it's so much easier to mold Christ into our image than us be molded into his. You can't be a disciple without embracing the way of the cross. And the chastisement and the challenge of Mark 8 is for us. It's for you. But here's the good news. To be chastised is to be offered grace to change. You know who God doesn't chastise? People that don't want anything to do with him. He wants to get our attention. He's trying to get your attention. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Jesus knows that the ways of the world have a tight grip on us, and he also knows that we like to keep a tight grip on the ways of the world. But the message is that Jesus Christ is enough and that by his grace we can deny ourselves and follow him. Would you stand with us this morning and sing this together? This is what we're talking about. Christ is enough for us. God is near to the humble. He offers grace to the weak. That's the beginning of self-denial, admitting our need. Are you a fan or a disciple? Look at your life. You'll be able to tell. Father, I know that you are calling us as your people to be your disciples. You are calling us to self-denial, calling us to take up our crosses, calling us to follow you in humility and in mercy and in service. I pray that you will be at work in the hearts of your people this morning. May we carefully examine ourselves, ask ourselves these questions. Be Be willing to do as you have called us to do. Thank you, Father, for this time. We ask that we would have your grace. Show it to us literally this week. As in Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. Have a great week. Room in your heart for God to write